at the next session Lucia told me, I got mad at my friend Sophie. What happened? Sophie's not in my class this year. She's been spending time with some other girls in her class, and I felt left out. When she didn't sit at lunch with me, I went over and told her, I don't think you want to be my friend anymore. What did she say? She said, why would you say that? You're my best friend. Good, I'm glad she's still your friend. But it didn't seem like that when she didn't sit with me at lunch. I got confused about whether Sophie really wanted to be my friend, scared when I thought she didn't, and then used a rude tone with her. When I'm confused, I get scared, and when I'm, when I'm scared, I get angry. Since she explained what she did, I know she's still my best friend and just wanted to spend some time with another girl. Like you said a while ago, I have to stand being scared without getting angry until I can figure out what's really going on. When I clear up my confusion, I'm no longer scared. But if I stay scared too long, I get angry and that causes unnecessary trouble. Eight years old? Welcome to In Contact with the ACO. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. This presentation features the care of a patient by one of the ACO doctors who practices a different kind of psychiatry. There's a new case presented live each month at the ACO campus in Princeton, New Jersey. These are real patients, but their privacy is protected. Each podcast episode is from the recording of one of these presentations. If you're interested in attending, you can meet the doctors and join in on the discussion afterwards. You can connect with us and learn more at a different kind of psychiatry.com. In this episode, we're excited to bring you not only Dr. Peter Christ's presentation, but the audience discussion too. It's a fascinating ongoing clinical case, and I think the discussion really helps one understand how Dr. Christ and other therapists in the ACO see a patient and look at his or her complaints. The story about this young girl just struck me as something that I really would like to share with uh, people as a takeoff point for discussing the kind of therapy that we do. A feelings doctor. Minutes into her first session, Lucia said, I just finished kindergarten, but I can already read. You want me to show you? She skipped out to the waiting room and returned with a book. She opened it at a bookmarked section and read confidently. Silence, Barlet, commanded Beezus. Yonder car approacheth, our noble mother cometh. Don't you call me a bad name, Ramona shouted. In a moment, Mrs. Quimby appeared in the doorway. Girls, you can be heard all over the neighborhood. Ramona sat up and looked virtuous. Beezus called me a bad name. How do you know, asked Beezus. You don't even know what Varlet means. Wow, she sounds like a grown-up. Lucia stopped reading and showed me the cover. Ramona the Brave. This is number three out of six in the series of Ramona chapter books by Beverly Cleary. In this one, Ramona's my age. She just finished kindergarten and didn't know what varlet meant, but I looked it up. It's an old-fashioned word for a servant. I nodded at her. She resumed reading, and at the end of the chapter, put the book down and said, I also like gymnastics and ballet. My after-school classes really give me a good artistic and artistic outlet, and, and athletic outlet. This is a six-year-old? Before Lucia's sessions, her parents told me, she's bright, creative, delightful, and charming, but she also has a nasty, stubborn, rude side. She can be a terror if things don't go her way. In the first session, Lucia had vividly revealed to me the delightful side, but where is her other side? Is she trying to manipulate me? I wonder how she sees me. I said, look at me and tell me what you see. Without batting an eye, Lucia said, you look old. I struggled to sound neutral. What makes you say that? My grandpa's 55, and you look older than him. She scrutinized me again. You have white hair, you have wrinkles, and you have bags under your eyes. You must be at least 65. Ouch. This girl sees the truth and tells it. She wouldn't say that if she were trying to get on the good side. It must be difficult for many people to handle her direct, directness. Once past the initial shock, I loved it. Silence settled between us. Tension grew, and I picked up a koosh ball. Catch! She closed her eyes and flinched. The ball bounced off her chest. Open your eyes and watch this one. 
She tried to keep her eyes open, but at the last moment closed them again. The ball bounced off her hand. She picked it up and threw it back with a little laugh. I'm not very good at catching. Just keep your eyes open and you'll get it. A couple more tosses and she caught one. She held it above her head and smiled. Wow, I got it. We tossed a few more. She still flinched, but kept her eyes open longer. I noticed fear pop up in her eyes each time a ball flew at her. We stopped and she smiled. I was getting better at it. And you'll get even better. I'm afraid I won't. A serious look passed over her face. Mommy and Daddy have to change my drinking water many times during the night. Why is that? Because I'm sure it has poison in it. My God. Underneath, this kid's frightened for her life. In the second session, I called the parents into my office. Lucia didn't say a word, but gave a pouty expression when they left her alone in the waiting room. After I finished with the parents, and once Lucia and I were by ourselves in the treatment room, I said, let me see that unhappy face again. That wasn't an unhappy face. That was a disgruntled face. This is an unhappy face. She made a face with the corners of her mouth turned down and a sad look in her eyes. This is a disgruntled face. She frowned, her bottom lip puffed out in a pout, and frustration and disappointment showed in her eyes, clearly different from the unhappy face. Is she really just six? What were you disgruntled about? I don't like being alone in the waiting room. Of course, but what is it you don't like? It's so quiet. I don't like being in all that quiet. At the next session, I opened the waiting room door to call the parents in and said to Lucia, I'm going to talk with your mom and dad for a while first. She looked troubled. The mother noticed and said, We'll just talk with Dr. Chris for a few minutes, then it will be your turn. When we returned to the waiting room, Lucia still looked upset, which continued all the way into the treatment room as she sat in the chair. I looked at her. There's that disgruntled face again. I still don't like having to be alone in the waiting room, but even more disgruntled that Mommy lied to me. What do you mean? She said they would talk to you for a few minutes. A few is three to eight. That was more than eight minutes. Lucia was right. We had spent nearly 20 minutes. Both parents had had a lot to tell me that day. I asked, what would you like her to say instead? Just say, we're going to talk to Dr. Christ for a while. I still wouldn't like being alone in the waiting room, but at least she wouldn't be lying to me. I said, you're right. I hate when people don't say exactly what they mean. She smiled at me. At the next session, Lucia said, I need help with not being rude. What do you mean? My mom says I'm being disrespectful and rude when I talk to her in an irritated tone of voice. When does that happen? Like when she reminds me to do something and she uses an irritated tone with me. That makes me mad. You could be mad and still do what she asks. But if she does something that makes me mad, I don't want to go along. What happens when you talk back to her with a rude tone? She gets even madder and stricter, and then I get madder and stricter. It becomes a vicious cycle. You could break that cycle. She looked at me, at first puzzled, then with dawning comprehension. Mommy said I need to learn how to be polite. Is that what you mean? I said, that sounds good. Why don't you try being polite with her and see what happens? Lucia came into the next session and sat down. What you said about being polite was very, 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 very helpful. If I'm polite with Mommy, she's much nicer to me. God, I love this kid. <laughs> Two years later, eight-year-old Lucia's feet LED flashing sneakers swung back and forth an inch off the floor. We sat in the two brown leather chairs in the corner of my treatment room. She slid down in the chair, laughed, pulled herself up, and slid down again. This dress is slippery on leather. A smile crossed her face. She sat up and positioned a little stuffed bear next to her on the chair. Looking at me, she said, I haven't seen you in a while. I know, it's been a couple of months. How have you been? Pretty good. She patted the bear's head. Mommy was away and we couldn't get here. She picked up the bear and held it to her ear. After a few moments, she answered my curious look. This is Monty. Mommy brought him back for me from her business trip to Montana. What did he just whisper in your ear? She lifted the bear's paw to point at me. 
He asked me, who is that guy? Oh, she held up a finger indicating for me to wait and whispered in the bear's ear, then said to me, I wanted to explain to Monty who you are so he'll be comfortable. She sat the bear next to her again. What did you tell him? I said, that's Dr. Christ. He's a feelings doctor. She smiled and put the bear's snout to her ear again. I asked, does he have another question? No, he just said, okay, that's fine then. My heart melted. At the next session, Lucia told me, I got mad at my friend Sophie. What happened? Sophie's not in my class this year. She's been spending time with some other girls in her class, and I felt left out. When she didn't sit at lunch with me, I went over and told her, I don't think you want to be my friend anymore. What did she say? She said, why would you say that? You're my best friend. Good, I'm glad she's still your friend. But it didn't seem like that when she didn't sit with me at lunch. I got confused about whether Sophie really wanted to be my friend, scared when I thought she didn't, and then used a rude tone with her. When I'm confused, I get scared, and when I'm, when I'm scared, I get angry. Since she explained what she did, I know she's still my best friend and just wanted to spend some time with another girl. Like you said a while ago, I have to stand being scared without getting angry until I can figure out what's really going on. When I clear up my confusion, I'm no longer scared. But if I stay scared too long, I get angry, and that causes unnecessary trouble. Eight years old? And she understands emotional dynamics better than did many of my psychiatry professors. She picked up a kush ball from the basket and tossed it to me with a laugh. The other day I had a quarrel with one of my other friends who has tantrums and is kind of rigid the way I used to be. Afterward, I told Mommy, I wish some of my friends could see a doctor like you. It seems that that all she needed was just a little contact and a little understanding and a little feedback. What a a lot of health in her. An Mm -hmm. enormous amount of health in her. Mm -hmm. And... um, she was, she was a, did you, did you have to work with her on the couch expressing emotions or was it mostly just giving her perspective and she got it? Well, for those who may not be aware of what we do, there's several different tools we can use in the kind of therapy we do. One is addressing the character, addressing things verbally and psychologically. The other is uh, just helping the person be able to express emotions, sometimes lying down on a treatment couch, sometimes not. And with her, it's been a mix uh, of both. And you're right, she has a tremendous amount of health in her. Um, and as is so often true, the people with the most health end up in some ways having the most intense symptoms and the most difficulty, especially in the world that we live in. And I think that's a perspective. I mentioned that in my interview piece. That's a perspective that I want to underscore. A lot of what I think has helped this girl has been just helping her get perspective about what's going on with her friends, with her parents, uh, with other people. But you know, it struck me in, in thinking about this, this case when, when the little quote came to my mind, she could be a terror. Um, that's how the parent and the mother described her at the beginning. But the terror was in her, a tremendous amount of terror. And when she popped out with that, you know, because I think it must be poisonous, like, oh my God, you know, there's terror in this girl. Yeah? Did you do a physical examination of her? Did I do a by? A physical examination of her? Well, did, did I? where she was holding, might be holding back, or? Yes, but it, but it was pretty clear from the very beginning. Her main areas of holding are in her eyes and in her brain. Mm-hmm. Though she can, is incredibly perceptive, she has trouble integrating those perceptions. Mm-hmm. And that's been a major part of the work with her, is just listening to her, her what she perceives, and then helping her uh, look at it. Um, I'd like to understand what the terror was. Was she so perceptive? Is that what causes her terror? Like, you're talking like deep-seated fear. I mean, you're putting the word of terror to it. 
what's causing that? I was just wondering, is that her I know, and, and that's the kind of thing that people ask so often, is how can a little child have so much fear when on the surface the parents are very decent, nice, um, but I believe with her, her need for genuine deep contact uh, just was could not be met by her parents uh, for all of the, their best intentions. Um, and so this feeling that she's somehow in the universe alone um, brings up, oh my God, what, where am I? What's going to happen? Um, you know, I'm still seeing her. She's now 12 years old. Um, and some of her liveliness and perceptiveness has gotten somewhat dulled just to survive, I think, in, in uh, traditional grade school, but she still, she, she chose the oboe as her instrument to play. Wow. And I told a friend of mine that, he said, oh my God, that is her, isn't it? The, this instrument that cuts right through, I mean, you know the oboe is the instrument the orchestra uses to tune every other instrument, because the sound of the oboe, that A by the oboe will cut through every other instrument while they're playing. So that's her. <laughs> um, yeah. How does um, the potential for the child to be healthy, how is that impacted by the parents? And I wondered if the parents were in therapy, and how do you deal with it? I started seeing the father in therapy probably two years before I ever saw her. And it was one of those things, I believe it was a test of whether I could be trusted by him and also by the mother. The mother was also in therapy with, an, with another autonomous, but not consistently in therapy. But every session has this pattern where I would see the father for his individual session, meet with the mother and father to talk about her, see her, and then follow up with talking with the parents about what I've seen, uh, how things are going. The mother's very perceptive. She sees her quite clearly. But she herself has trouble, uh, I mean, I, I say over and over, it's the way people are similar that cause problems in relationships. She's also very rigid. She's also very what? Rigid. Rigid. Oh. Yeah. Things have to be just her, her way. Mm -hmm. So the, the basic answer to your question is working with the parents is a key part of the work with her. But I, it, as often happens in working with people, have the sense I'm not sure whether I'm getting anywhere or whether I'm making as much difference as I would like and then they'll say something and so just maybe a month ago the mother had the, the girl has eating disorder I don't know what it is but she has a very rigid uh, narrow selection of foods that she will tolerate uh, eating so the mother found some you know, they come from a distance they travel three to four hours to, uh, for session. So I only see them about once a month. And the mother found somebody local that deals with eating problems to work with her to see if they could get her to broaden her selection of foods because she's complaining, I can't go to on parties and so forth without taking my own food and it's embarrassing, I don't want to have to do that. And so the mother found this person and it looked, seemed like the person started doing therapy dealing with their anxieties and got in between the mother and the daughter, sort of sided with the daughter. The mother felt you know, the therapist was uh, creating a problem between them. I don't know the whole truth of that, but the, the reason I'm telling this part is the bottom line is when the mother called me to ask me what I thought after I'd finally had a conversation with that therapist. And she said, uh, I don't think, it sounds like she's trying to do what you're doing, and I would rather someone that would just deal with the eating thing so you can continue deal, dealing with Lucia's anxieties. And I said, that sounds exactly right. She said, I just feel like from the moment you saw Lucia, you got her. You got what she was about. And I said, sometimes that happens. And I think that was true with her. And she said, um, she said, when we first brought her to you, 
I was afraid that by time, the time she was a teenager, she would kill herself. And I never had that thought, no. And at that moment, it's like, God, I had no idea the parents viewed me as having made that big a difference in their life. But I guess my question is, will they get in her way of her health? How do you combat that? Not that parents are always that, but <laughs> Parents always know. both support and get in the way of their children's health. It's, it's both. So we will have to see. Um, we'll have to see what comes up, um, what needs to get dealt with. I've had times where I've met with uh, Lucia and her father just to work on their relationship. Other times where I've met with Lucia and her mother to work on their relationship. So, you know, they're they're both very well-intentioned. Both parents are very well-intentioned, and they just have to deal with whatever comes up. In an ideal world, would you be seeing them all in therapy? Or? Yeah, probably, and probably uh, more often than once a month. <coughs> so it's amazing how much can be done uh, that infrequently. I, you know, I, I used to think, well, I wouldn't see anybody unless I saw them um, more frequently, but... Um, I was b born in Missouri, you have to show me. So. <laughs> if you show me that it works, that's good enough. There's another question. Yeah. You know, in the way you describe the case, it's um, so nice how you followed her lead, I guess. Mm -hmm. You listened to her and, and didn't, you know, decide years ago we're going to work on and go for it. You waited for it to come up. So I guess I'm wondering. Um, with the eating issues, there's a reason you didn't work with her about that? Oh, I have worked with her. We've, we've, we've talked about it uh, many times, and then it just got more sort of acute of several situations of going away to camp and other things where it was really bothering her, and I still am not sure what how much it was the mother's that's urgency or Lucia's urgency. And, that's what I was going to ask um, you next. The mother says it's all coming from Lucia. I don't think so. Right. <laughs> Did you have any thoughts? You want to make? Sure. <laughs> no, I was just thinking back to Hillary's question, and you know, in working with kids, there comes a point where if they're getting better, they're strong enough to face whatever they're thrown back into to a degree and as she gets older I would imagine that that's happening more and more and you know she's 12 years old she's mm -hmm. getting pretty independent I would imagine too just just enough a thought about what you mm -hmm. asked yes um, what was she why was she so afraid of her drinking water that it had to be changed well she, she thought she believed it had poison in it and so that was the clue to me that she had tremendous terror, tremendous fear that was being projected. You know, so that's something I, I've seen with her. I haven't emphasized that, but you know, her tendency has been instead of "I'm afraid," it's "You're making me afraid" or "It's making me afraid." So it's a tendency to project the feelings outside herself, and and that's been something that, that has happened in the course of therapy is now she can say, I'm afraid, rather than having to say, you know, there's something poisonous out there. But that, that tendency to not be able to tolerate the feelings and project it is, is still there. I mean, it, it, it comes up. I think that will always be a tendency in her. Do you think that her eating disorder is a manifest related to that? It's a good question. I, I think so, that, that, that she's managing things. I mean, that was her problem in her, in her relationship with her parents, is she had to be in control. If they wanted her to, if her father said, you got to get ready for school, she could not be pushed. She had to do it on her own schedule. So her whole attempt to manage uncontrollable feelings was to manage... Uh, everything and everybody around her. And I think you're right. Uh, I hadn't quite put that, so thank you. Uh, I think that, that may actually help me in looking at it. But, um, but that's another manifestation of her having to control things around her. D does that make sense, everyone? Uh, yeah, I, guess I was just wondering if there was some maybe event in her life that made her 
think there was poison in the water. I'll just mention that I knew of a little boy. He was my neighbor's son, and he had had pneumonia. And after that, he was about six. Yeah. After that, he was afraid of smelling any. Like if he smelled paint, mm. he thought he was going to get sick. If he smelled mm. anything, asphalt or gas, he thought he was going to get sick. So I was just wondering, uh-huh. you know, if there was an event like, like that. I think it was his pneumonia that made him. Well, see, uh, my perspective about what you said is I don't think the, the uh, pneumonia made him do that. I think his tendency to do that was already there, and that became a trigger. Okay. So why right. poison with her? I never, to me, it wasn't worth even trying to track that down because that would be going down a blind alley. Right. The most important thing was help her tolerate feeling mm-hmm. the fear and, yeah. and facing it and dealing with it. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I mean, her, still recently she said, um, um, boy, I wish some of my friends could see a therapist like you. Okay. I mean, that's still so much in her. Uh, it's, it's just so touching you know, to have a. You know, I mean, the first time she said it, she was eight. But you know, to have an eight to twelve year old saying, "Boy, you know, we need more people like you." <laughs> I wish you lived closer. You know, when I asked her, "What do you, what do you not like about therapy?" It's because we have to drive so far, and it takes a whole Saturday. You know, um, but you know, her feeling about what we're doing is always. Somebody said, "I mean, I think." She has a very deep natural need for deep contact. And so if she gets that, she's like uh, um, um, starving man with the first bite of food. She feels that, I think, in coming to see you. Was she six when you said she perceived that her anger was the layer, like the defense over the terror? I thought that was important. Incredibly. Yes, upset. I know. I know. I mean, that, that I'm. Uh, I'm always blown away at some of the insights she has like that. Because I had just mentioned at some point, you need to just stand being afraid, and you won't have to okay. get angry. Um, but, but she. But that she put that all together. That, yeah. that that's what happened with her friend. She was eight at that time. I have two questions. One is, what's the youngest kid that you ever dealt with? And the other one is, um, how long do you think she'll be in therapy? Um, the youngest I've evaluated was um, two months old. Uh, the youngest I started treating was 13 months old. And for those who aren't familiar with the kind of therapy, because we're looking at where emotions are in the body, it's not dependent on language. You can see where a uh, baby is holding back and tightening their, their muscles, and you can help them let those out um, and get relief. And with her, a lot of the work with her now I see very much as ongoing maintenance to help her just um, stay with the health in her and to support that. And I think she could probably use that um, maybe the rest of her life. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's not like there's, you know, I think she would probably um, do pretty well if we stopped now. Um, she might get into some trouble and the parents would bring her back. But as long as we can keep the process going, especially before she becomes a teenager, when all hell will break loose, as it does with everybody. So you've got to just be prepared. That once her energy level ramps up, um, when she, it was quite touching when she was in third grade, kids are doing this game of kissing and, and sort of disconnected physical contact that wasn't emotional and it just felt awful to her. She didn't want anything to do with it and I think that was healthy on her part. So just to help her see, no, because everybody's doing it it doesn't mean uh, it's a good thing. So that kind of perspective, as I said in the interview piece, we live in a really crazy world unfortunately and children need to have support for the health of them. Yeah. Is there one aspect of this crazy world we live in that 
seems to impinge more often than others on, on the children you treat? Um, yeah, that's a really hard question. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, can, you can start on that. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many things going on. For me right now, the biggest thing with adolescents is they're being stuck in their phones and their screens and having not developed human relationship skills. Yes. So that based on what you just said, and it's something I've often thought about. Is it then a disconnection, or is it a different connection to other human beings? And at the same time, still being connected, because disconnection, to me, is is a problem. It's a source of problem. Partly, how how much can a computer graphic really emulate human touch? You know, so... There, there's that, you know, yeah. that there's no replacement for human contact. Mm-hmm. And that's what the kind of therapy that we do is all about. So I hope that answers your question. <laughs> I was wondering, yeah. I, I, I would add to that that um, the tendency in our culture is to get either mechanical or mystical in the primary form that mysticism takes is moralism. So people get moralistic about um, anything, including uh, cell phone screens and, and all that. So it's a tool, and that tool can either be used constructively or destructively. And I think that way, if, if you want to approach things functionally, just keep your eye on the effect of something. What is the actual effect in the moment and long term? So, like with Lucia, she was the only kid in her class who did not have a smartphone. And she was after her parents over and over, I need a smartphone, I don't want to be left out, everybody else is making connections this way. And they finally got her one, and I think she's managed it just fine, um, from what I see. It's not become an addiction, it's not become something that, that uh, seems to interfere. Now, whether it could become that, again, you just have to watch and manage the effects. So going back, going back to your question of, is there one thing, and I would say the one thing that it all boils down to, and it's part of what, what uh, Dr. Bosworth is saying, the major problem in helping kids is contactlessness, but so? That's the problem in the world. People not being, either being able to or not making genuine connection with each other. So it's, that that can take many forms. We know the uh, old-fashioned authoritarian contactlessness, children should be seen and not heard. And then there's the modern permissive contactlessness where anything goes and uh, there's no distinction between something that's either neurotic and self-defeating or healthy and, and constructive. Would you be concerned about Lucia using, say, marijuana? She said to her, she's dulled now at age 12. Mm-hmm. As that energetic push increases, would that be a concern? And is there any way to head that off? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, I think it's always a concern with young people. Always, um, I don't. And, and the way to head it off with her, I think, is just by maintaining a very good, open connection, open relationship with her. Um, I don't see her particularly drawn to that because she does not like her brain dull. She wants to be absolutely sharp. It's it's what's helped her survive, and so I, I, I don't know. I, and her fear of some foreign—I mean, you know, she has lots of allergies. Again, how much the you know the the, um, the other therapist when I talked to her said, I'm not sure her food allergies are real, whether that's the, an, an over concern. 
but she, you know she has a concern about anything foreign coming into her. So um, that may protect her from being interested in drugs. We'll see. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm just curious. You said you had some questions, wanting to see if what you could learn. So has this helped you? See anything you have? Yes, you. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. Tremendously. I've um, not on your level, obviously, but I have a grandson who's been having some difficulties, and I just have so many questions, and there's, and I don't know where this is all coming from. I've been reading a lot, and particularly bipolar, and there's questions of Adderall, and there's all kinds of things that are kind of coming into it, and I've just want to know more about it. I just don't understand. It seems to be such a big deal now. There's so many kids that are bipolar and younger and younger. And why? Are they just being diagnosed better? Or worse. Or worse. Or what do you do? I mean, I, this is all new to me. And so let me, let me address one part of that, because I think it's very important in general for all of us. So after the mother, Lucia's mother decided to discontinue taking her to this other um, eating disorder therapist, she sent me an email uh, saying she had her regular visit with her pediatrician, and he thinks she may have food neophobia disorder. And are you familiar with that? And I look at that word, food, neo, new food. Uh, she, she has a fear of new foods. Oh, but you call it food neophobia disorder, and it sounds like some fancy thing. They're doing a study at John Hopkins on it, and they have you know, uh, documented evidence that cognitive behavioral therapy uh, helps with it. So the next time I saw them, I told the mother, let's talk about it when I see you. And I said... Uh, as far as your email, you reminded me of one of my favorite New Yorker cartoons of a woman lying on the psychiatrist's couch and says, Doctor, I have this horrible, unnameable dread. Don't worry, lady, we'll find a name for it. <laughs> okay? So part of the problem is people love to pigeonhole things with a label so we can say, oh, we don't have to deal with that anymore. We can call it this. Instead of, I mean, even bipolar disorder... The old term used to be manic depressive disorder, which at least had a bit more emotion in it, that people get manic and they get depressed. But bipolar, it sounds like it's an electrical computer problem. (laughs) (laughs) What's that? It's interesting because it's almost like there's a spectrum from unipolar to bipolar, and it just reminded of just different levels. So so let me... Use what you've said also as an opportunity to say what we're looking at as medical ergonomists is an understanding of the whole way the person functions, which means their character. So how do, what is the whole way that they deal with their emotions? And so almost all of the traditional psychiatric diagnoses, all the ones in DSM, are based on symptoms. Like a, like, I mean, a checklist. A checklist. Yes. In the old days, he used to call it a Chinese menu approach to diagnosis. Mm-hmm. You know, with, with um, two, you get egg roll. You know, um, but um, bipolar disorder usually is describing a symptom of someone with unstable emotions, and that can be true of a wide range of, of character types. So. You know, Lucia could have at some point be, have been called bipolar disorder and said, well, you know, she can be very, very nice, but then she can be a terror and rude. Um, she has mood swings. But that would miss the essence of her, which is the underlying terror and need for genuine contact and her tendency to manage that fear by controlling things, whether that's controlling them with her mood or controlling them with her behavior. I'm not sure what to say as far as to help you with perspective about looking at that that whole question because I'm always suspect of when they make the diagnosis of bipolar disorder with children instead of just really looking what's going on emotionally with this Mm -hmm. kid. I I questioned it myself because Mm -hmm. it just it was triggered after a friend had a suicide and he just 
became devastated. Mm -hmm. And he just became irrational. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, he was bipolar, mm -hmm. where he hadn't really shown any symptoms. He had some ADHD, but he, you know, he really hadn't shown these dramatic symptoms until this happened. And now all of a sudden, they want to take so much medication that he just can't function. So it's really hard to watch this happen. And I don't know, it just, I just want answers. I just need to learn more. There's so many questions and there's so much out there to read. Yeah. So at the risk of oversimplifying what you're bringing right now, some of what you're saying sounds like this child was enraged that this happened to this mm -hmm. close friend. And one of the things that society has so much trouble dealing with is legitimate anger. We're told to be calm. We're told to meditate. We're told don't, don't get excited. Yes. But life is exciting, and things happen to us that make us angry and need to be expressed. And often children get misdiagnosed as bipolar because they get angry and they don't know what to do with it and it comes out in ways that are destructive to themselves or to yeah. other people. Yeah. So that's, that's part that's of the kind of therapy yeah. we do is giving um, a patient a rational outlet for yeah. a whole range of emotions, not just talking about it, but really being able to express it physically. What does that mean? Like you have a punching bag, right? What's that? Like you have a punching bag? Yeah, I have a punching bag in my treatment. No, really? Yeah. So that's what you mean? You really mean physically? Yes, I really mean physically. And if somebody needs to cry, you know, yeah. it's, it's very different to say I'm very feeling very sad as opposed to actually crying. And to your point, and I don't want to get off the case, that you, you want to discuss, um, but my son is diagnosed as bipolar at age 20. And again, I don't know the old the the range of, of age that you work with, but I'm still trying to get a handle on it um, because I didn't want to accept. I mean, I sort of accepted it because he had a break. And so, do you work with people that are on medication, and then you have to help them? With it, in it, out of it, in conjunction with a bunch of stuff like Mensa. Have you heard? Imagine you've heard Mensa. And, uh, I, I didn't. Mensa is the is an an institute in um, integrative me uh, mm -hmm. mental health in Chicago, and it's getting broader and broader recognition. Some people swear by it. So, but to answer but your anyway. question about, yes, we work with people on medications. Sometimes medications are necessary to control symptoms. Mm -hmm. and um, But there is no such thing as a free lunch. Medications always have some effect. Mm -hmm. And so you have to balance the downside of it. And, and But if the person can handle the emotions, they won't need the medication to help them manage the emotions. So that's what our yeah, underlying he approach talk is. He never did talk a lot. Do you, I didn't know if that was a bipolar thing. Like communication, I would think it's a huge part of what you do. Yes or no? Yes. Yes. Because I find that's being really difficult. I don't know if it's a guy thing. I don't know if it's a bipolar thing. I don't know if it's a personality thing. So to be able to talk about feelings, right? Mm -hmm. That's where you. Where you go with this, I would think. Not just talk about them, but ex be able to express, express them and tolerate feeling them with, without going off. Have you done a lot? I don't know how long you've been here or done this. I, I'm assuming you've done psychiatry for a while. What's that? I'm assuming you've done psychiatry for a while, but then this is just a different kind? That's, that's right. And so when did you decide to do a different kind? I don't know if you did that. It spoke about that in the opening or what? No, no, we didn't talk about that. So I'm trying to. They, we're, we're describing the kind of therapy we do mm -hmm. is a different kind of psychiatry. So the kind of therapy we do uh, has been around since the 1930s. Uh, this organization was founded in 1968. 
we've been on, in this location since 86. So uh, we train uh, um, psychiatrists and psychologists in this approach in therapy. I'm going to bring it to you. <laughs> he lives, again, several hours away, but... I'm sorry? He lives, unfortunately, quite a distance. That's well, how, it's one that's of the reasons. That's how you solve everything. Just have Dr. Christie. What's that? <laughs> that's how you solve everything. Just have Dr. Christie. I'm yeah, sorry. It, it's C R I S T. There's no. <laughs> 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 um, but one of the reasons that this story came to my mind is I read it in one of my writers' groups, um, an earlier version, quite some time ago, and one of the members of the writers' group afterwards said. Sounds like what you do is somewhat different, uh, a different approach in therapy. Would you be willing to see my son? So, <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Well, I think I'd like to mention, to speak to your point, I think the difference is that many psychologists you would go to today would have you talk about your feelings. This is treatment that gets you to express them. You don't, like you, you did say that, Dr. Chris. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm, I may, you might come in and say, I'm really angry at whatever. Well, this kind of treatment help you get that anger out, be it actually express the emotion. It's not so much a talk therapy, and that's why I can work with children. Mm -hmm. and, and if I could have a getting in touch with the feelings, I mean, it could be you might have deep-sixed your feelings and not know they're there, mm -hmm. and then exactly. you suddenly, through this, their technique, all of a sudden these feelings come to the surface, and you know, you want to tolerate being able to stand them and express them. Mm -hmm. So I want to go back to the, this case in, in light of uh, all of that. Before I saw her, the parents had taken her to see, um, so when she was probably five, five and a half maybe, the parents had taken her to see another therapist who uh, took a behavioral approach, thought that she was, she was being... Uh, overly emotional and dramatic and wanted to have them be stricter with her and, and not, not, not just give in to her ir irrational reactions, not just demands, but her irrational reactions. And they tried to do that and she got worse. And so that's when, because I was seeing the father, they decided to bring him to see me. And how do we understand it? To me, it's very simple and very clear that if you don't understand the function of her behavior, which was her way of managing this terror inside of her, and you stop that behavior, that terror is going to get more intense, and the behavior will have to be more intense to manage that greater fear that's come to the surface. So the approach that, that from the moment I sensed how terrified she was inside was let's deal with the terror so that she can then handle that in a way without having to be so rigid and controlling in her behavior. So I mean, is that clear? It's a fundamental uh, difference in understanding we need to understand the function of the child's or the adult's behavior before we start changing it. It's like don't take away the defenses until you understand the function they're serving and have some means of helping the person handle what they're trying to handle with that defense. It's a kind of, what do they call that, self-contact? Feeling of you know, knowing who you are. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And if you do, you do that, you have great freedom. You know, if you really... I'm sorry? You're if you have that self-contact, you, you have the freedom of, of choice of, of how to work and live. And yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, that if you can make contact with yourself, then I, I you can choose what defenses to use, yeah. what one's not. I mean, I, for many patients I say, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. That's what the character is. You get them to laugh, too. What's that? You get them to laugh, too. Yes, and that laughing is actually very, very helpful. It makes people breathe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Could you just talk a little bit about, um, you know, being a different kind of psychiatrist, the way you observe a patient for the first time, what you're looking for that other, other types of psychiatrists wouldn't even, it wouldn't be on their radar. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Do you want to start with this? Uh, <laughs> no, I'll let you take it. Well, I mean, I mean, we need a break. Uh, you love to ask the questions that go right to the heart of things. You should be an interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> so, I watched birds as a child. I, I, I was interested in watching nature around me all the time. And recently, I told someone about an amazing observation that I'd made about a bird, and I said I told a bird, an avid bird watcher about that, and they said I've I've never heard of that. And this person said, most bird watchers aren't bird watchers; they're bird identifiers. Um, part of the reason I chose the title for my book, All People Great and Small, it conveys that sense is when somebody comes in, I really am just looking. What kind of creature is this? What are they doing? Where are the feelings? Especially, where is the excitement? Um, what, what does it seem like is where things are moving in them? And from there, I can then get a sense of where are they stopping movement? Where are they tense? And, you know, somebody comes in with their, you know, I mean, you'll see someone walk in, you know, um, you know like that. Well, you know they're, they're not relaxed and at ease. So, so they're holding uh, tension there. So I'm, it's, it's not conscious. It, it, it's just that same sense of, and, and I don't know the analogy, of, you know, I'll, I'll let you speak to what you do, but I often have that sense that I'm looking at someone like I would look at a, a, a bird I haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. I don't know how, you know, I, mean, I hope that gives you a sense of, I'm looking for, what are they doing? What, you know, it's hopping over there, it's hopping over there, it sings here. Um, so I, I'm, I'm really doing that, with, and that's why it's great to work with kids, because they are actually much livelier than most adults. You know? um, so you can see it more easily. And then you had a second question? No, 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 it's just that, you know... The oh, how is that different from other yeah, people? I mean, I'm afraid most psychiatrists are trained in that mechanical approach of what are the symptoms and how do we fit that into this category that's in the book that lists the symptoms under DSM-5 now, up to number 5. Um, you know, there are other very good psychiatrists you know, that, that are observing what's going on emotionally more. But I feel so fortunate to have learned about ergonomy to be able to have the training to know you can do all of that in a structured way. That each person has seven segments of armor where they hold the ocular, oral, cervical, thoracic, uh, diaphragmatic, abdominal, and pelvic. So we have a structure you can say, okay, this is where it looks like the tension is. But it's not just abstract looking. Um, Raikou developed this form of therapy, contributed to the scientific method by saying rather than coming up with a hypothesis and testing whether it's true, just observe, observe, observe until a conclusion comes to you. And that's the same thing in the treatment room. A diagnosis is a conclusion, so you want to have that diagnosis fit the actual observations rather than some conclusion you come to in your mind. And if you want to, uh, you said everything I was going to say. Better. <laughs> All right, well, I should have let you say it. You wouldn't say it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think this word function though should be emphasized here because. That is the biggest difference between this kind of psychiatry and most other kinds of psychiatry, which don't look at the function. They look, what medicine can I give to treat these symptoms? That's so far removed from what we do. We want to know 
how this person uses what they were given to navigate through their lives. And that just is a functional approach. It's very, very different. Maybe we'll take one last question and then there's one last thing I wanted to say. Bring up the difference between psychotherapy with a psychologist and and the kind of therapy with a psychiatrist. I mean, don't most people? I mean, being treated by a psychiatrist isn't that kind of a rarity? <coughs> Oh, you know. well, these days, you know, to have a psychiatrist who does something other than psychopharmacology, meaning prescribed medications, is a rarity. We are a very small group that remains uh, among, you know, psychoanalysts still do. Uh, there are still some other more psychoanalytically trained psychiatrists who will do that. But we are um, really a very small group um, among psychiatrists. But... Uh, to me, the training in medicine and how the body functions is so tremendously valuable in, in what we do. So, yes, you're, you're right. Yeah, okay, was, one more. <laughs> this isn't even really a question. It just goes back to Hillary's question about the difference. thinking of it in sort of a joking way, but one of the differences is that you see people for more than 30 minutes or 20 minutes most psychiatrists may see patients for 15 or 20 minutes to yeah. yes. do a checklist and prescribe a medication. Yeah, yeah, and, and you're right. I mean, it, it takes time to uh, allow connections to happen between people. I say over and over, you, we don't make contact. We can allow it to happen. It's a spontaneous process. You need to give it time. You don't make love. It happens or it doesn't. Okay. <laughs> Same with contact, you know, the, the, a genuine connection. So the, the, the thing that I wanted to go back to, um, as that you alluded to, is the concept that Wright came up with of the three layers of everybody's emotional structure. Um, I put the names on them, nature, character, and personality. And that's also a part of the structure of how I'm looking at people. I'm constantly trying to be aware of what is their healthy nature, because that's always there. We're born with nature. No baby is born neurotic. I don't believe. Um, and then we develop a character to handle our nature and the world with it. And then we develop a facade of personality over top of that to manage the interactions with the world. So making that basic distinction between the primary core healthy nature and the neurotic character and personality uh, is a lot of what the observations are about that I'm doing when I'm working with people. Thank you very much. Listening to this case and the discussion was for me an emotional roller coaster. What life in her? As Dr. Christ remarked many times, how old is this girl? Her intelligence, perceptions, and interactions can be astounding. And yet, she has ongoing difficulties and immense terror that she has to face. I was enraged to hear that she had dulled a bit, likely to contend with the education system status quo. How did you feel to listen in? What did you think of the discussion? What stood out to me was how Dr. Christ deals with difficulties in relationships without even a hint of judgment. He comes across as if he just wants to help people look at their problems and find a satisfying way of dealing with them. Simple. I'm curious what you think about his explanations and how that compares with your understanding of other therapies in psychiatry. Does anything stand out? We are interested in your questions and comments. Visit our website link in the show notes and let us know by email. If you like our work, be sure to subscribe and leave a favorable rating. Find more episodes at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts.
Be sure to check out our next episode, which features Dr. Susan Marcel discussing pregnancy, birth, and emotions. Pregnancy and birth are, are very emotional experiences. What I would like you to take away from today's discussion is the importance of that emotional connection during pregnancy among all of those people around the pregnant woman and the baby. And when I say emotional connection, what I mean is that the parents, they know how they feel, um, their own feelings, but they also understand and feel what the baby's feeling. So that, that both are true. And also that the caregivers who are taking care of the mother and the baby and the father, that the caregivers are aware of their feelings. This is Dr. Chris Burrett. Thank you for listening to In Contact with the ACO.